Please be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that your spirit would help us experience opposite day here. Left to our own ways of thinking, we are prone, all of us, are prone to reading the text, hearing the text, um, applying the text in a way that points not to you, but to what we have come to believe is real. That is not the good news. That's just our news, the old news. So work inside of us. Uh, take the words of my mouth, everything that we're thinking, and even the reading of your Holy Scriptures, and um, energize them so that we might understand the way in which the good news turns our worlds upside down. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one that curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Romans 4, 1 through 5. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. And Romans 13 through 17, <clears throat> For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there's no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also those who share the faith with Abraham. For he is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into the existence the things that do not exist. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So where were you the summer of 1985? Where were you the summer of 1985? You got it in your mind? I was in the Laclede Mill. 
Helen's putting her thumb up because Helen and Leonard have a cabin that's behind the Laclede Mill. And I had just graduated from college, and I was on my way uh, to Princeton, but I had a mission besides earning money, right? That's why you would be in the Laclede Mill. <laughs> and I was in the late night shift, probably kept you up at the Laclede Mill. Um, I, I had the opportunity to begin to learn Greek as an undergraduate student. And for some time, um, I really wanted the chance of working with a particular New Testament scholar at Princeton. But the schedule was such that the only way I could really do it is if I did it my very first semester while I was at Princeton. And so that meant that I would have to take in um, a, a placement test once I arrived. And even though I had the opportunity to um, begin beginning Greek in college, it wasn't going to be sufficient. So there I was in the mill trying to pull the, the plywood off, not plywood, the, <laughs> the two-by-fours off, and I had my Greek New Testament reading through Mark. That's what it was going to be, that was what I was going to be tested on. And that was my summer. Um, and I was so surprised at the end of the summer that my foreman uh, was surprised that I was leaving when I had been reading Greek the entire summer, trying to do that and to earn money, um, made it to Princeton, uh, somehow passed that test, and I was able to um, take J. Christian Becker's class on Romans. And at the very heart of that class, was the passage read this morning. I was interested in taking this class because, quite frankly, my first experience, maybe not yours, with the book of Romans went sort of like this. What? What? What does this have to do with Jesus at all? And then, when I went to college, the primary teacher that I had for theology and modern theology assigned as the most modern books to read Luther and Calvin. So I was steeped in the 16th, 17th, 18th century discussion of Romans. But it didn't make sense to me. I couldn't quite put my mind around it, and so I thought this would be an awesome opportunity. Um, you've probably never heard of J. Christian Becker. Um, he was a brilliant man. He was a traumatized man. He grew up in the Netherlands during World War II. He could never really speak about what he lived through and what he saw, but it dominated his passion for understanding how evil could happen in the world. Um, it took me a while to unpack the idiosyncrasies of J. Christian Becker. Um, you know, if you've ever been there, uh, Princeton Borough is sort of a really nice place to live 
Uh, it's super expensive. If you're a professor, you're given a home, which is sort of cool. He chose to live in Trenton. I never quite understood why at first, but it was part of that story. Somehow living in Princeton away from the reality of pain wasn't something that he could bear. Well, at any rate, uh, Dr. Becker had just published his massively important book, Paul the Apostle, The Triumph of God in Life and Thought, and I was ready to go, and in this class was a PhD student, I was just a master's student, named Bart Ehrman. Does that name ring a bell? If it doesn't, go to Amazon and look up Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman had some of the same questions that I had. And so it was interesting in the class discussions. And it was a seminar, no place to hide. And Bart especially was able to ask questions that certainly in terms of the Greek text were beyond me. This may seem simple. But one of the things that Dr. Becker brought to the discussion of Romans is the need to distinguish between what in the Apostle Paul's thought was contingent based on the worldview at the time that Paul lived in that we would no longer subscribe to. And what in Paul's thought was coherent. Now, that almost seems like when you ask that question, you're saying, well, wait a minute, wasn't Paul, the Apostle Paul, coherent? And something that I really actually didn't realize at the time is that Paul never wrote to be coherent. He wrote letters. He never thought that what he wrote had to be coherent. Now, just think about this for a moment. Um, what if we took, I don't know, the stained glass window talks over the last three years and put them together and expected them to be coherent? I don't know what we would come up with. That's one of the challenges in looking at this unbelievably important material. But it raises that dialogue between contingency and being coherent. Um, with my children, there's always a different contingency. Hopefully, there's some coherence in communication between all four of them. But, you know, it gets hard, right? So oftentimes, when you talk about the Apostle Paul being inconsistent, that's a, that's a perspective that we sort of put on top of those writings that maybe is unfair. You with me so far? Okay. The contingent worldview of the Apostle Paul is known as the apocalyptic worldview. This worldview comes out of trauma, and it comes out of the frustration that God doesn't seem to do enough. And it was absolutely popular for about 200 years before Jesus walked the earth and absolutely popular until Constantine ruled the earth. So for about 500 years. And basically, this is what this worldview assumes. That there are good people and bad people. God likes the good people. 
God hates the bad people. It's okay to destroy the bad people before they destroy you. And if you're lucky, angels will be involved. Sound familiar at all? None of that has anything to do with biblical faith. But it creeps into Christian faith even today, doesn't it? And so what the Apostle Paul was doing often is writing to an audience who sort of thought this was the way the world was. And so as he does this, he begins to pick up what they already assume and then move it to a different place. All of his letters are pastoral. Stay with me just a little more. If we ask today... Um, Maybe the best Roman scholar, N.T. Wright, what this chapter read for us today is getting at. Um, he would point out four things. First of all, the reason why Paul goes back to Abraham is because Paul looked to Abraham as when God established a covenant with the entire world, with all people. In the passage today, Abraham is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's why he goes at first to Abraham. The second thing is that when the Apostle Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's actually talking not about who's good and who's bad. He's talking about the faithfulness of God to be the God of all people. That God actually has fulfilled his promises to be the God of all people and has established, even at that time, what we would call a multi-ethnic community. Instead of separating, God has brought together. That means, three, that Paul's use of the term righteousness is not about purity or reward. Now think about that for a moment. How often do we think about righteousness as being on God's side? Purity. How often do we think of righteousness in terms of, well, we know we technically don't earn anything from God, but come on. If we're righteous, he wants to give it to us. It has nothing to do with either one of those things. Instead, it's about God's rightness in covenant making. It's what we talk about here a lot. Being in relationship and having a love standing with one another to be able to, to live together, to grow together, um, to argue together, um, to be part of what God is doing. That is the righteousness of God in the passage. And then finally, when Paul speaks of reward, and in our passage it was translated as wages, um, but it's really reward, and it goes back to this passage in Genesis 15 that Paul seems to be alluding to. It's never in terms of earning salvation. Not the way that Luther read the text, or Calvin read the text. They were awesome. But they weren't as close to the text as we are today. It's never 
about earning salvation, but it's always used reward in terms of creating a huge family, creating a huge, inclusive family. So what N.T. Wright would tell us is that if we read the text in terms of whether or not we're saved by grace or works, that maybe was a breakthrough in the 16th century. But it's not the best reading of the text. If we read the text that Abraham, Abraham is made... Abraham becomes the father of us all, Jew and Gentile, right? Because Abraham believed, the word there is amen, trusted in God. Trusted in this great opposite idea that doesn't seem to be naturally confirmed anywhere. That God is the God of all peoples and God's project in righteousness is to bring us all all together despite all of our differences. That's what Paul is talking about. And then as you read Romans, you realize that what stands in the way of that is sin and death. Paul talks about these two things as power. Death, where all of a sudden our crocodile brains kick in and we want to identify who's against us. And that grand plan of bringing us all together is split. And sin. Well, you can pick the sin you want to look at, but all of the classic sins drive us apart rather than pull us together. Ultimately for Paul, neither Jew nor Greek is able to participate in God's rightness without the world-transformative, world-shaking reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Easter is so important. Another way of saying this is even if what I'm describing here is appealing to you, everyone being part of the same uh, multicultural, different, ideaed family, if that sounds awesome to you, what are the chances you think we can pull that off? That's why we need, and this is where Paul goes apocalyptic, the only place. We need the world and reality changing work of Jesus Christ, who are non opposite day killed, but because it's opposite day, rose in power and makes it possible for us as we participate in Christ to join in that great righteousness of Christ to bring us all together just as Abraham and Sarah could never have had a child without God's intervention. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. Um, you know what Paul calls what I just tried to describe? He calls it a mystery. He calls it a mystery at the very end of the Gospel of Romans. Listen to this. Now God, now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret 
for long ages but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and it's made known to all Gentiles, everyone in the world, according to the command of the eternal God. It's a mystery. Now, this is sort of odd. I just spent a lot of time and maybe put you to sleep trying to explain something, and then I say it's a mystery. Well, would you give me this? If in any way I've provided an explanation that approximates what the mystery of God is, that's only operating in our 5%, that explanation. For this to work, it's got to get down in the 95%. That's where the mystery is. That's where we live it. That's where our lives are changed. That's where we learn to live as the Apostle Paul tells us, in love without the fear of death. That's where we learn somehow to be unshackled by sin in a new creation that Pam reminds us of every single week. We don't think our way there. We can't think our way there. And inevitably, when we do try to think our way there, we construct a system that divides us that separates us from what God is doing and because it's our constructed system, we sort of think that we're on the right side of God. We've earned it. It's a mystery. In Ephesians, Paul says, in former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it now has been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the wooing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if there's any truth in this homily, it's not a type of intellectual truth. It's not an argumentation. It's something that deep down you and I might settle into through the mysterious workings of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Apostle Paul talks about it. So, are we in trouble? Maybe even more trouble than we were in the Reformation period. Sue Monk Kidd says, what has happened to our ability to dwell in unknowing? To live inside a question and coexist with the tensions of uncertainty. You know, that's what faith is about, right? If it, wasn't, if it was certain, there's no faith. When you learned math, two plus two is four, no teacher ever said to you, just have faith. Faith is not necessary with certainty. Faith is necessary with mystery. Where is our willingness to incubate pain and let it birth something new? This is the grieving process. Grieving is not about getting over. It's about what is incubated new. What has happened to patient unfolding, to endurance? These things are what form the ground of waiting. She says waiting because that's what faith is. 
waiting. That's what J. Christian Becker was doing all of his life. Sometimes in a Princeton classroom with a bunch of, gosh, immature, arrogant, disconnected students who wanted to know exactly what Paul was saying and why. And then he would go down to Trenton. Because he was connected to God's unfolding gospel in the world. I can't believe he humored us. Students. Sumanket says, if you look carefully, you'll see that all of these things, uncertainty, incubating pain, endurance, patient unfolding, they are the seedbed of creativity and growth. What allows us to do the daring to break through to newness. I'm guessing, if you're at all like me, you need, I need, that children's message maybe more than they do. I don't think we believe our baptismal voice. I don't think that we live in a state where we hear the voice of God and hear, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. We hear other voices. The flowers are cockeyed. Right? If we are going to walk with Christ in Lent, towards Easter, we have got to be willing to risk opposite days. To identify the voice of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in us that always leads with love and not judgment, but calls us to responsibility and engagement, not moving away and disengaging. And because it's opposite day, Christ wants us to remember that he is with us. That we're not going to do it on our own. On the night that our Lord and Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples and through them to each one of us, this is my body broken for you. Do this remembering me. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, uh, the Elijah cup, the cup that the apocalyptic people were holding for Elijah when he finally came back. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in the shedding of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Another way of saying that is for the endurance of love. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul said to us in his correspondence to the Corinthians, who began to believe that this spiritual feast was to make them bigger, stronger, brighter, better smelling than everyone else, that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim to the world that our Lord and Savior died 
we participate in that and hold faith that he will come again. This is the joyful feast of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an appropriate feast for the second Sunday of Lent. May we eat and drink and see that the Lord is good.